Our scripture today comes from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 to 20. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure. No immoral, impure, or greedy person, such as a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. This is why it is said, Wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful, then, how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. God, I ask for your help to think and talk about a subject that's not necessarily easy to understand. And even more importantly, it's, it's difficult for us to face. But if we do, it can be so liberating and so life-giving. Amen. So if I were to ask you what the worst possible sin was, what would you say? Adultery? Murder? How about genocide? Well, the biblical answer to that question may surprise you. It's idolatry. And before you quickly respond by saying, idolatry? That's worse than genocide? Let me hasten to say that without idolatry, you don't get genocide. Without idolatry, you don't get murder. Without idolatry, you don't get adultery. And that's the consensus view of all of the prophets in the Old Testament. 
while they will decry the injustices of society, the plight of the poor, the widow and the orphan, they place all of those criminal actions at the feet of idolatry. If you don't have idolatry, you don't have those injustices going on. Unless people are worshiping other gods, um, gods that have different values, different priorities, than the real God, Yahweh, you don't have those things. Things like murder, things like genocide, things like racism happening. And that's why um, idolatry and the prohibitions against it are at the top of the list of the Ten Commandments. Stealing, lying, even murder and adultery are pretty far down in the list. At the top of the list, we have God saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And actually, these two prohibitions reflect the two meanings of the word idol in the ancient world. An idol can be a graven image or statue that represents a god. But an idol can also be the god itself that is represented by that statue. At least that's how the ancient Israelites would use the word idol. And so we're not to have any other gods, and we're not to make a graven image of any other god, and even make a graven image or statue of God, of Yahweh. Why not? I think there's several reasons for that. One is having a, a statue for Yahweh kind of puts him in the same class and category of other gods that have statues. And God wants it to be clear that God is above all of that. There may be other gods, and uh, the Old Testament and Paul refer to these other gods as demons, but God is over and above all of that. He's the most, the most high God. Another reason, I think, is that... Um, it's important that we realize that um, God already has an image. He's already made an image of himself. And that's you. And me. And every human being. This goes back to the very beginning of the Bible. Chapter 1, verse 26. When God makes human beings on the sixth day of creation. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Well, we'll get to that so that part in a moment. What we really want to focus on now is that God already has an image of himself, a likeness, and that's you and me. Now, in the ancient world, um, in the Middle East in particular, it was believed that there were some human images of God. They were the kings. Um, they, they were the only ones made in the image of God. They were even called sons of God. All the rest of us, and I've mentioned this before, but all the rest of us um, were slaves, created to be slaves, created to serve the kings and to serve the gods. And so when, when the Hebrews were told that each of us is made in the image of God. That was 
remarkable. And what's interesting and, and is that that applies to every human being, not just Jewish people, but every human being is made in God's image. Now, that could be just semantics. I mean, it can be kind of interesting to say, yeah, it's human beings that are the image of God rather than some graven image to an idol. But it means something. And it has to do with the meaning of, of images and, uh, and idols in the ancient world. Um, and there are basically two reasons, two purposes for, for a graven image. And they have to do with worship and they have to do with reigning. And so uh, an idol or graven image would be placed in a temple, for example, or possibly in a home, where, where the god that was represented by that idol would be worshipped, and maybe even the statue itself, because it was believed that the god was somehow inhabiting that statue. So it had, it had a worship function. The other function had to do with reigning and ruling. And so uh, a king would place uh, an image of himself, or possibly of the god, or both, strategically placed in, in, in different parts of their land. And that was to remind people that the king, as the son of God and the God itself, reigned over that territory. The king couldn't physically be there, and so the king had a representation of himself placed strategically throughout his land. Again, the purpose was for reigning. We have been made in the image of God for the explicit purposes. And I mentioned these are dual purposes. This is a dual vocation that we've been given to worship and to reign. And I know this is really hard. I and mean, some of you have said, this is hard for me to get, Pastor. And I get that because we haven't spoken in these terms. We haven't thought of our lives in this way. And so it's really different. It's really strange. And yet it's so biblical. And so we just read how we were made in God's image so that we could rule. Get into Genesis 2, and we've got this Garden of Eden going on. And scholars have pointed out how we have here something that sort of parallels the temple. And it's actually the temple that's meant to sort of mimic or copy what's going on in Genesis 2. And so we've got this Garden of Eden. It's surrounded by the rest of creation, and so the rest of creation is sort of the outer court of the temple. Okay, it's, 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 the, uh, it's, it's in the temple, but it's the outer court. You get to the Garden of Eden, and that's the inner court. And then you get to that center of the inner court where the tree of life is. That's where the Holy of Holies is. And that's where Adam and Eve meet God. And it's on a mountain. We know it's a mountain because there are four rivers that flow down from that mountain. And so Adam and Eve are priests. They're high priests. They're here to reflect, think about that idea of being an image or a mirror, to reflect to God the worship of all of creation. And they're also here to reflect to creation the care and stewardship of God, the ruling of God. They don't, they don't rule instead of God. They rule on behalf of God and with God. Now, a very similar um, sort of idea is connected with another metaphor that we find, and it's used in our scripture reading for today. It's the metaphor of our being sons and daughters of God. We were made and, and now remade, reborn into sons and daughters of God. And so Paul says, be imitators of God, therefore, like dearly loved children. He dearly loves us, just as he loves Jesus. Um, 
be imitators of God as dearly loved children and live a life of love. Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. If you're the son and daughter of a ruler, um, you're a part of, of ruling. You're being trained to reign. And that's one way Dallas Willard describes what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. We're being trained to reign. Eventually, um, we'll be uh, reigning um, over all creation fully, again, fully engaged. We see this in the last chapter of the book of the Bible, of the Bible, in the last chapter of Revelation. Um, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. That's where we're headed. We're headed back to the beginning. We're training and getting ready for playing that role over all creation. We're training for reigning. And so as sons and daughters of God, we've been remade, reborn, into the image of Jesus, who himself is the image of God, the human image of God. And he models for us both what it means to worship and to reign. Paul describes, describes him as being this living sacrifice, that his death was a living sacrifice, a, an, a, an aroma to God which speaks of incense. That's worship imagery. And later Paul will say in, in, in his letter to the Romans, I appeal to you by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, as your appropriate expression of worship. And so we learn that worship isn't just engaging in certain rites. It's following the example of Jesus, of offering our lives to him and to his cause. And we also have a picture here of what it means to reign or to rule. Unlike the rulers of this world that tend to see their subjects as being there to serve them. Well, Jesus himself put it this way. He said, I've come not to be served, but to serve. And demonstrated that, demonstrated that ultimately on the cross, laying down his life for the common good, for the good of humanity. And that's how ruling happens. That's how reigning happens in the kingdom of God. Some of the people I most admire um, during this pandemic are young parents, children in the home. Some of these parents, and that includes some of you, are, have full-time jobs, and you're having to care for your kids. You're having to help them with their online learning, and it's tough. I've heard some of you say, you know, it's been really good. Love having this family time, and it's hard. I mean, we're together all the time. Well, there's another pandemic that's been going on a whole lot longer, and that pandemic is the spiritual disease of sin. And God, as our parent, has been present through all of it, every moment of it. He can't get away, or at least he chooses not to get away from it. And, and he shows his love by being a part of our lives in spite of the way that we've neglected him. You know, so often kids have not a clue as to what it means to be a parent. All that a parent does for a child. We don't have a clue as to all that God is continually doing for us. And yet he shows his love for us by continuing to be present throughout this pandemic, 
until the end of the age and ultimately showing how much he loves us by laying down his life for us and for the world. So that's, that's what it means to rule. That's what it means to reign. It's to be willing to deny ourselves, which is language that Jesus uses, even to take up our cross for the common good. Someday we're going to be a part of the new creation. It's going to be great. But until then, we're very happy to be a part of this great cause of serving Christ and his kingdom. And even as we worship Jesus and the Father in the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, and, and eventually in this uh, reading, Paul talks about worship. He says, don't be drunk with wine, which is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, so so gather together to worship and then scatter with that spirit of worship in your heart, just giving thanks for everything. Because everything is an opportunity to notice where God is blessing you. And everything is an opportunity to be training for reigning. I mean, no matter what it is, you're having the opportunity to exercise what it means to reign. Now, after talking about what it means to imitate Jesus, Paul says, but among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or greed, because these are improper for the Lord's people. Paul is cluing us in to where our training for reigning needs to begin. And that's in ruling over ourselves. Not allowing our desires to rule over us. And this, this gets into another topic. I'm just going to allude to it here. But when we do that, when we sort of give up our authority to some other creature, that creates an authority vacuum that the powers of darkness can exploit and use. Powers that Jesus had to defeat at the cross. I know that gets kind of deep. But the point here is if we're going to rule and reign, and we all, you know, wherever we live, work, play, and learn, we have the opportunity to be people of influence. We have to learn how to rule over our own desires. We have to learn how to rule over our loves. Nothing wrong with sex. It's, it's a form of love. But when we start to love that more than God, or money, or food, or anything else, we've got a problem. We've got an idolatry problem. And so ruling over our desires, that's a part of the challenge. And we have the Holy Spirit here not only to help us worship, but to help us have that sort of self-control and self-discipline. Now, when I talk about worship, let me, let me explain that. Um, how, I, I, there's a lot of different ways to understand worship, but this is how I'm going to describe it this morning. To, to worship God is to celebrate, it's to admire, it's to serve, and to enjoy God. Idolatry is celebrating and admiring and serving and enjoying anything, any creature, any aspect of creation, more than God or instead of God. Nothing wrong with celebrating what's in creation and all of creation itself. Nothing wrong with admiring that. God loves it when we admire his handiwork. 
Nothing wrong with serving. I mean, that's what we do. Part of reigning is simply serving. Adam and Eve worked in the garden. Nothing in, in wrong with enjoying. God says, you can eat any from any of the trees in the garden except one. He designed things to be enjoyed. But when we celebrate and admire and serve and enjoy anything, more than God or instead of God, we got an idol going on. And that's not, again, just semantics. It's, it's going to affect us. Because those other things aren't meant to be God's. Take food, for example. Um, we can enjoy food, celebrate food. But food can't satisfy me. I'm made in the image of God. It's not meant to ultimately satisfy me. Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. God's way of living, the way of Jesus. They will be satisfied. So we can't be looking for these creaturely blessings to ultimately satisfy us. That will make us greedy. It's a word that Paul uses in a few moments. And so a part of ruling is our ruling over our desires with the Spirit's help. And then Paul talks about our words. You're not going to be able to rule very well unless you can rule over your own words. And so he says uh, next, uh, nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. It's hard to control our mouths, isn't it? And James compares it to a wild animal. He says it's basically impossible. Without God's help, it's impossible to have control over, to reign over our speech. And, uh, and yet it's so important. I think we all know that. I can think of a handful of things that were said to me growing up by parents, coaches, teachers that had such an impact on me for good and for ill. I think you probably right now can think of words that not only stung, but stuck. And so our words are an important realm for our ruling and reigning. So um, what's an idol? And we've already described it as anything that we celebrate, that we admire, that we serve, that we enjoy more than God or instead of God. But what are some likely candidates? Once we move into the New Testament, the word idol gets identified with things that are more than just statutes to a god, like Asherah or Baal. And so Paul, for example, speaks of greed as a form of idolatry. For this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let's pause and reflect upon that word inheritance. I don't, I don't know what you imagine when you think about your inheritance in the kingdom of God. It's not you're having some estate, some, you know, some cottage or camp where you can just have a good time. Your inheritance is where you're going to rule. It's where you're going to reign. And so when Jesus says, blessed are the meek, those who don't seem to be getting anywhere in this life, who don't push themselves, or who aren't bullies. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. It's not just that they're going to be able to roam and go wherever they want. They're going to rule over the entire earth. Just as Jesus describes 
uh, at the end of Revelation. So to have an inheritance is to, is to have a, a territory. In one of Jesus' parables, it even talks about cities where we are responsible for reigning. But um, being greedy is a form of idolatry, and it sabotages our training for reigning. So money and possessions uh, can become an idol. I think we know that. Jesus affirmed that. He even had a special word for that, and it's mammon. It's an Aramaic word. Um, but there are other candidates as well. Um, recently, I, I read about a, a study that was made of, of people using their cell phones. And they, they, they uh, did research on 96 Android users. And uh, I, I suspect of what, they, of what they found of Android users, users was, uh, is probably even more true of iPhone user, users. But um, they put a, an app on the phone to, to uh, record um, what they called um, interactions with the phone. And that can include any uh, tap or type or swipe or click. The top 10 in that list averaged about 5,427 interactions with their phone every day over the course of a week. That's a lot. And the overall average was 2,617 interactions with their phone. Taps, types, swipes, and clicks. That's a lot. You know, sometimes when people hear Paul's encouragement for us to pray constantly, we think, that's impossible. That's, that's, that's way over the top. I can't do that. Hmm, I wonder. If I can have an interaction with my phone thousands of times a day, maybe I am capable of praying. Maybe not every single moment, but in a way that has prayer be a, a part of the rhythm of my daily life. So a phone, I think, can be an idol. It certainly looks like it, but when you walk down the street and realize what people are looking at, they're not looking at God's creation, so often they're looking at their phone. And speaking of phones, we think of, and iPhones, I think of uh, Steve Jobs, who uh, was co-founder of Apple. He, like all of us, had his own idols, and one of his idols was food. He was just enamored with food and diets. Already when he was a teenager, he was experimenting with diets. Uh, over a two-week period, all he ate was apples, for example. Well, when, uh, when he found out that he had pancreatic cancer, um, it, it, it was an unusual form of pancreatic cancer, not as aggressive and fast-growing. In fact, it was very curable with a simple surgery. Um, it could easily be cured. It had a very high success rate. He decided not to go down that path. He decided to use diet, a vegan diet, some other things, to try to address his cancer. So that when nine months later, when they finally opened him up, it was clear that his cancer had spread. And he struggled with that for eight years until he died at the age of 56. He, uh, in talking with his biography, biographer um, talked about all of that with a hint of regret. Food gave him a sense of control, even controlling his disease. His friends just kept saying, get the surgery. It's simple. It's the only proven cure. 
And, of course, food can be an idol. Some of us struggle with, with food as one of the idols in our lives. Something that we celebrate, something that we admire, something that we serve, something that we enjoy more than God or instead of God. Another candidate, according to an associate of professor of religion, Charles S. Prebish, uh, who uh, teaches at Pennsylvania State University, I don't know if he's a Christian or not, he believes that the fastest growing religion in our country is sports. And he doesn't just compare sports with religion, he really believes that sports has become a religion, that it performs all the functions and roles in many people's lives that religion used to perform. And that's probably easy to, to understand uh, as being the case. But there's so many possibilities. I mean, Jesus, he talked about wealth and mammon. He even had that special word for it. He, honor was something he cautioned against. And in his society, honor was actually seen as being a more valuable currency than money. And if you had money, you used it to gain honor for yourself. Jesus says, in the kingdom of God, the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. He talked about family. And he had pretty strong words to warn people not to allow family to become an idol. He even talked about scripture. Today, we sometimes use the word bibliolatry, making the Bible an idol, putting the Bible equal to God or even above God. And that may have been part of the problem for people in Jesus' day. They looked at Old Testament prophecies. They expected them to be uh, fulfilled in a very literal way. They had a wooden way of looking at scripture, and they ended up killing their own Messiah. Jesus said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is these that testify in my behalf, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Church can become an idol. Ask any pastor, and church can become an idol. So how do we keep God's good gifts from becoming idols? Well, Paul himself uh, talks about this. And I have to rather do this rather quickly, but uh, hopefully I can say enough about it to, to uh, gain some understanding that will be helpful. One of the ways we keep things from becoming an idol is by continually connecting them to the Lord. And that's what Paul does. Throughout this passage, you know, in all of his letters, Paul, no matter what he's talking about, references the Lord every other word sometimes, or at least every sentence or every other sentence. I mean, he begins by saying, uh, you be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. He talks about avoid, avoiding sexual immorality and greed, which are not proper for the Lord's people. Um, he talks about our inheritance in the kingdom of God and of Christ. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. And find out what pleases the Lord. I mean, I, through this whole passage, Paul is continually referencing Jesus. I mean, even music can be an idol if it isn't referencing and, and, and we're not thinking about Jesus. I'm not certainly saying that all music we listen to is to be Christian music, but, but it points to our Creator, the ultimate artist. And he demonstrates this in his, uh, his description of family. Long, long passage about family. And I'm not going to go into detail about, out of, uh, about it, obviously. Um, but the thing to note here is this continual reference to the Lord. The way you help your family not become an idol for yourself, your spouse, your chi children, 
is by bringing the Lord into everything. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. He's not going to question existing authority structures. He's not going to talk about whether or not save, uh, slavery, for example, is right, or what's the best model for marriage. He's saying, let's, let's just take the, the, the current hierarchy, the current authority structure, and, and think about how we can live these things out in Jesus. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. And then right away begins to shift to the husband, even before he talks about the husband, uh, or addresses the husband. He says, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. Now the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. So he's referencing Christ. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. And then he begins to talk about the church. And then the family is sort of a farm system, to use a sports analogy, for the church. It's to equip our children to play their full role in this kingdom outpost, in this ultimate demonstration, this city on a hill of life in the kingdom of God. And of course, churches then have the responsibility of having a vision and mission that's captivating, that requires all of who we are, all of our gifts and talents and creativity, a vision for reaching our community and also empowering people and equipping people to be the presence of Christ wherever they live, work, play, and learn. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. You're getting the point that one of the ways in which we keep things in perspective and proportion so that they don't become idols is by referencing the Lord. And so if you're never talking about the Lord or referencing the Lord in your conversations with your spouse, it's probably an idol going on. If you never talk about the Lord, mention Jesus in, in your conversations with, with uh, your children, probably an idol going on. If when you're with church people you never talk about Jesus, probably an idol going on. Jesus is our life. And so attending to him, intentionally bringing whatever we're doing to him and vocalizing him, is one way to keep these things from becoming idols. And then there's gratitude. Paul says, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. But not just gratitude. Because gratitude on itself can reinforce an idol. Saying, yeah, I'm just so grateful for my family, or I'm grateful for my job can reinforce that these things are the things that rule over our lives and the things that we serve. We're to be grateful to God, the source. If I run out of food, food can't replenish itself, but God can give me food. If I lose a job, a job can't replace itself, but God can give me a job, can lead me to a job. And so when we're grateful to God for what we're doing and what we have, again, that puts things in perspective and, and, and gives them their proper proportion and importance. So if I'm eating a meal and I'm doing it out of greed, and greed can apply to anything that we, we treat as an idol, and I'm, I'm basically out of my neediness. I'm hungry, I have this compulsiveness, and of course I come to a point where I should stop, but I don't stop, and I overeat. It's probably because of that neediness and greed. But if while I'm eating the meal, I'm eating it with gratitude, each, each bite, each part of that plate person I'm having a conversation with. I'm doing it with a sense of, thank you, Lord. Thank you. When I'm tempted to overeat, I'm not saying the temptation won't be there, but it's less likely 
to, to, to be carried out. So not only gratitude, but thanking the Lord for everything. As we said earlier, everything is an opportunity to worship and to reign. And finally, we can confess our idols. That means admitting that some things have become an idol. They're good things that we've allowed to become a God thing in our life. Paul says, wake up, sleeper. He's probably quoting some hymn or possibly a baptismal rite. Wake up, sleeper. Rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Worshiping and serving an idol is like being dead compared to worshiping God, to celebrating and admiring and serving and enjoying God. We may have to learn how to do that. But, but to ask Christ to shine on our lives. Lord, is there an idol in my life? And that can be hard to face, but he, he wants to bring it to our attention so that we can be set free, so that we can be liberated, so that we can become more fully alive. I hope this has been helpful, at least thought-provoking. May God continue to show us the way to life, including setting us free from our idols. Let's pray. I know, Father, that you love us. We're dearly loved, as Paul writes. And so this conversation about idols is, isn't so much because you, you're so offended, but because you love us as children and you want us to be free. You want a relationship with us. You want us to fulfill the vocations you've given us to worship and to reign and we're not going to be fulfilled unless we learn how to do those things. Would you help us take this message and apply it to our lives? Holy Spirit, please help us. Come alongside of us. Amen.